From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Army is aiming for 2023 to make major funding shifts from legacy systems to its modernization priorities. Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy tells Defense News those priorities will give the Army more capability to fight in multi-domain operations. McCarthy says the fiscal 2022 night court process found fewer programs to cancel, cut or delay than previous years. The Chief of Naval Operations says the force will start from scratch to design what it's calling DDG Next. Admiral Michael Gilday says the ship will feature a smaller hull than the Zumwalt-class destroyer. Defense News reports Gilday says the new ship will need a bigger magazine. He says the service will use a similar process to the Arleigh Burke program. Former Defense Department Acting Inspector General Glenn Fine is the winner of this year's Career Achievement Award from the Council of Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency. Seven individuals took or groups took home special category awards. Federal Times reports a total of 90 IG office personnel across government won awards. The Future of Defense Task Force says the Defense Department needs a Manhattan Project for artificial intelligence, but the department may be thinking about AI the wrong way. Brian Clark is senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. He's former special assistant to the chief of naval operations, former director of the CNO's Commander's Action Group, and he and his colleague Dan Pat are writing about AI in breaking defense. Brian, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You and Dan write this. Recently, the Jake changed course, the Joint Artificial Intelligence uh, Committee changed course and announced a series of moves that break with the flawed AI is a thing paradigm. What's the AI is a thing paradigm and why is it flawed, Brian? Well, thanks for having me on, Francis. It's great to see you again and great to be on the program. Uh, so what we've seen in the Department of Defense is uh, a trend towards treating AI as, a, as a, a system or as a technology that you buy uh, and that you have somebody go develop in a, in a you know, single organization like a uh, naval reactors or like the Manhattan Project where you can develop it as a thing. Um, the problem is AI is really just a technique. It's a uh, information processing uh, methodology that uses um, you know, artificial intelligence as an algorithm to allow a system to analyze the situation and then uh, make decisions, predictions, uh, inform you about what the potential uh, outcomes might be. So it's a it's a technique and it's not a thing. And uh, you know the idea of a Manhattan Project is probably a flawed approach to take to buying something that's really a methodology rather than a, than an object. So the headline to your piece is treat AI as intelligence, not technology. Are you referring to intelligence as brain power, as knowledge, or are you referring to it as intelligence, as in the intelligence community? Uh, no, we're talking about intelligence as brain power. So the idea is artificial intelligence in multiple forms is able to provide you the same kind of um, uh, capabilities as a human might, but in a very narrow form. So uh, AI that helps you with image recognition, for example, might be uh, doing equivalent to what an image analyst might do in the intelligence world or, or on a ship or, or in an airplane. Um, but the AI is able to do it. That's its only function. That narrow AI is, is performing that one function of image or pattern recognition, which is something that a human could also do. A human can obviously do much more because a human has natural intelligence, which allows us to do uh, you know, complicated reasoning, which maybe an AI can't do. 
But the idea is to start treating AI as a, as a form of intelligence like you would treat um, the subordinates on your uh, military team, for example. So I've got a military team member who's focused on image recognition and pattern recognition. I've got a team member who's in charge of coming up with courses of action and doing planning. Why kind of AI um, algorithms that are doing a similar thing um, as opposed to the human that can do multiple things, the AI algorithm is only doing one of those tasks at a time. And the oh wow moment for me in reading this piece, Brian, was when I got down to about paragraph five, and if anything, you and Dan understated it, you write the recent dogfighting victory of an AI agent against a fighter weapons school graduate uh, suggests AI will profoundly affect military operations. It wasn't just a win. The, the algo beat the pilot five nothing convincingly. What does that say about the progression that you're suggesting that we should take? So what it what it suggests is that um, the pilot's best uh, the best use of a pilot, for example, may not be in trying to maneuver the airplane to outmaneuver another airplane. Um, that might be something that's a form of narrow intelligence that might be better shifted to what an AI algorithm could do. Um, whereas the pilot's best purpose might be to do the higher reasoning that pulls together what's happening in the in the world and comes up with a creative solution to kind of what's the next thing uh, they're going to do to be able to have victory in this operational scenario, rather than having them bogged down in the um, the nuts and bolts of trying to maneuver the aircraft to achieve a, an advantageous position relative to their adversary. Um, so that's again this idea of thinking of AI as a as a as a form of intelligence rather than as a um, replacement for a human. So I like that phrase, victory in this operational scenario. In the operational scenario six months from now or two years from now, the other, the adversary's AI is going to grow and evolve. And this turns into an AI race, which it strikes me supports the idea that you're, the argument that you're making that this is a technique and not a technology. Yeah, and um, what, it, what it argues for is that um, we should be thinking about the, the fact that the uh, AI is now proliferated widely throughout the military and commercial world. This is not some new technology that we have to do a Manhattan Project to harness. This technology is widely distributed. We have them in our phones. We have AI uh, technologies that are being used in uh, commercial aircraft industry to maintain the, to do a performance-based maintenance of uh, aircraft. So we see AI having already been proliferated. It's here, and now the idea is how do we uh, best leverage it for the task that it's suited for? So it's this idea of treating it as a member of your team rather than treating it as a new technology that you're gonna get a box for and put into your aircraft. So I'll take your rhetorical question and, and make it uh, an actual question. How do we do that, Brian? If a Manhattan Project approach is not the right approach, what is the right approach? So uh, if we think about the fact that AI is now widely proliferated, there's a lot of research and development going on in it. Um, what the, uh, the uh, National Security uh, Committee for uh, Artificial Intelligence found essentially is that those R&D efforts aren't really transitioning into operationally useful applications very quickly. So what we really need is some better way to transition AI research and development algorithms into military systems. Um, one one a part of this is the paradigm of thinking as AI as a form of intelligence, as a member of your watch team, rather than thinking of it as a technology. The other part of it is coming up with organizations or organizational changes that allow these R&D efforts to transition into an acquisition system. It's a similar problem to we have with other technologies that are having difficulty making it across that valley of death between research and development and into acquisition. So some, uh, if we come up with a uh, program executive office that's focused on AI, for example, they could be making sure that these AI algorithms are transitioning into systems. What the Jake has done is a great uh, approach where they think of uh, AI as a service 
And instead of contracting for an object that has to transition into an acquisition program, they are acquiring AI services that they're going to incorporate into the software of a program and just have that be a living uh, uh, living, uh, breathing part of that system as it continues to evolve. Brian Clark, a great conversation. Terrific to have you back on the program. Thanks very much. Thanks, Francis. It's great to be on. Up next, tension rises in the Indo-Pacific. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the CNO says China is competitor number one. What should U.S. strategy say? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The current national defense strategy lists the Indo-Pacific region as the Defense Department's, quote, priority theater. The explosive growth of China's Navy fleet and other actions in the South China Sea will likely make that the case for a long time. Lindsay Ford's a fellow at the Brookings Institution. She's writing about the Indo-Pacific defense strategy for the Center for a New American Security. Lindsay, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. We chatted a little bit before we went on the air about what we call where we are with China. Some folks call it a Cold War. You said you're not sure you would do that. What's the difference and why does that matter, Lindsay? Well, I think the main differences um, that I would argue between the Cold War and where we are with China, which I would term more competition, uh, and, and that's the way that the National Defense Strategy talks about it, strategic competition, um, is, is one, I think, the aim of, of what we're trying to do. The, the Cold War was really about the fact that the United States assessed that Russia had come to a place where it believed um, that the United States and the USSR couldn't coexist. Um, and at some point, both sides were essentially trying to um, ultimately bring about the demise of the other. That's not what we're trying to do with China. Where there is a similar comparison, I think, is the fact that the Cold War was cold uh, was a reflection of the fact that we didn't go to war. And while we certainly are going to be competing with China in a lot of areas, um, economically, technologically, and you see that playing out right now, we have the same desire to not actually see a war occur between the US and China. And that's why I really emphasize in this paper that what we need to be thinking about is deterrence, essentially how you prevent war or conflict from coming about. To do so in this uh, work, you make three recommendations, three proposals. The first is prioritizing the operational challenges present in the Indo-Pacific in force design and posture. Regarding the force design, we've just seen over the last week or so, Secretary Esper endorsing the idea of a 500-plus fleet Navy, uh, a ship Navy fleet, and drastically changing the structure, the kinds of ships that comprise that number. Does that fit with the vision that you had when you put this work together, Lindsay? Yeah, I think there's a lot of similarities uh, in what they're talking about with the new um, ideas for Navy force structure. And, and basically, you're contending with a couple of realities here. One uh, is that if you look at the latest report that came out of the Pentagon, they say the reality is that China's, uh, is China's Navy uh, is enormous um, and is bigger, at least in the number of ships right now, uh, than what the U.S. has in the Pacific, uh, and that that's going to be an increasing problem for us. So a part of this is recognizing the challenge of scale that we're dealing with. Another part of it is um, the fact that we're talking about a lot of uh, unmanned systems, um, smaller, uh, more, more ships and assets, but also unmanned systems. And what that means is um, they're what we would call attritable meaning that if you have uh, a whole lot of Chinese missiles coming at them, which we do, 
um, that you don't only have a very small amount of large, extremely valuable naval assets that the Chinese can knock out right at once, but that we have a lot of smaller systems that are unmanned, and therefore, if you lose them, it doesn't necessarily mean that you lose the entire conflict. Also means that they're potentially more easily replicable and replaceable, right? It does, yes. So that you can manufacture them um, at scale, hopefully more cheaply uh, and at a faster pace. The other two recommendations that you make, I tied together as I read them, and I apologize if I inferred something that wasn't there in your work, Lindsay, but you, you write about modernizing U.S. military training and exercising programs in the Indo-Pacific and strengthening U.S. alliances in the region. Strikes me that those are two elements that should be very tightly tied together. Is that fair to say? It is fair to say. Um, so I think the reality when we look at the complexity uh, of the military challenge that we face from China right now um, and the scale of Chinese forces is that the United States um, needs to be working under the assumption that were there to be a crisis or a contingency, we need to be fighting alongside our allies. Um, and so what that requires is you have to think about training um, alongside allies together with them in the kinds of possible um, crises or contingencies that we could face. That means both on a day-to-day -day, uh, basis, operating together in places like the South China Sea, where China is maintaining massive amounts of Coast Guard and naval vessels, all the way up to were there to be, unfortunately, a contingency or a conflict situation. Do we have the right procedures um, in place? Are we interoperable? that uh, we could operate together with our allies seamlessly and know how to respond. We have about a minute and a half left, Lindsay. Who is or are our greatest potential allies in that region of the world, but that we're not maximizing those relationships right now? Where does growth potential exist for, uh, for ally relationships in that part of the world? Sure, well, our treaty allies, we have five of them. Um, I, I don't think we're going to take on new treaty allies, but I think there are great opportunities to enhance our military partnerships. And I would say there that I think uh, India is one country where we really have a rapidly growing defense relationship that I think uh, will be much more promising in the future. Lindsay Ford, thank you very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program. Thanks very much. Up next, not everybody's fighting about everything on Capitol Hill. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what members in both parties agree on that could bode well for the Pentagon. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. The Defense Department needs to take a whole-of-government approach to national security, according to the Future Defense Task Force. The bipartisan group recommends faster development of artificial intelligence and unmanned weapons systems. Dov Zakheim, senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, former Undersecretary of Defense Comptroller, and writing about the task force in The Hill newspaper and on thehill.com. Dov, welcome. Thanks for coming on. My takeaway from your piece is that you were less focused on the contents of what the task force found than that the task force found stuff in agreement in the first place. Am I reading you right? Well, almost. <laughs> first of all, it's good to see you. Um, look, there, there are really two major things here. Uh, 
first of all, as you say, the fact that they could work together is a huge, huge deal in, in this terribly chaotic environment, no question about it. But second of all, if you actually look at what they said, uh, this is a, a really a map or a, a guidepost for the next 30 to 50 years. It is a completely different view of what our priorities should be in terms of defense. Uh, it lays out uh, whole of government in a very, very different way, I think. Uh, it'll talk about immigration. It'll talk about STEM. It'll talk about early education. Um, it, it is really, as I say, uh, a very, very unusual, uh, provocative and thoughtful document. Who should do what with this, Dove? What, what should happen next uh, beyond what Congress should do to recognize that its members, eight of its members, have put this work together? Well, they're different people need to do different things. I mean, in the first place, you need a White House that understands this uh, and that is willing to uh, farm out to different uh, agencies different responsibilities. In other words, you can't just have the Department of Defense as the default agency for everything to do with defense. Defense is simply much wider than that. So you have to have a completely different attitude to immigration. You have to have science and technology managed differently. Those are different agencies. Uh, and of course, the State Department and its diplomacy need to be far more important than they've been in the last few years. All in all, uh, it, it takes a White House, uh, a concerned White House and an informed White House to farm out these different responsibilities properly and effectively and then uh, coordinate them. Whether that White House is President Trump's second term White House or President Biden's first term White House, what, what, what are those connections within the executive branch that need to be enhanced and, and, and evolved of? Well, um, as I said, uh, when you're talking about science and technology, there's uh, clearly a responsibility in the White House itself. They have the Office of Science and Technology. There's the Defense Department, obviously. Um, in some respects, uh, maybe even Homeland Security. Uh, if you're talking about uh, beyond science, if you're talking about immigration, that, of course, is uh, the Homeland Security Department and its sub-departments. Uh, and so that's a very different area. There's the Department of Education that has to come into this. So uh, as I say, they, they need to work together and it's the White House that brings them all together. In other words, instead of just focusing, say, on Treasury with sanctions or on defense with the military or on state with diplomacy, you bring in commerce, you bring in education, you you. Therefore, you're bringing in a completely new set of people that may not have thought of themselves as uh, being essential to national security, or even if they had, never saw themselves playing in that field. You, make a, you, you write something here that I think is especially interesting, Dove. You write, the Defense Department bureaucracy relies far too heavily on consultants and contractors as intermediaries between government and private industry. Where would you like to see that shift to more DOD personnel, whether civilian or uniformed, to make those connections? Well, um, on the uniformed side, you have a, already a structure that would allow for it because you have professional military education. You have nothing like that on the civilian side, really. Now, for PME, as it's called, I think you need to have military people uh, spending some time in industry, uh, spending some time in uh, academia at the highest levels, an MIT, an RPI, a Georgia Tech, 
uh, a rice, places like that. So they really understand the technology that they're acquiring. And then of course, they'll know how to use it in a way that perhaps they might not if they really aren't familiar with what it does. Uh, on the civilian side, you've got people who basically come into the government and never take another course in anything. In fact, if they're good, their bosses won't let them go. So it, we have to have a completely different cultural shift here where people who want to be promoted understand that the only way they can be promoted to the higher levels is if they have this sort of background, because it's going to be critical. It's what the Chinese are doing. It's what the Russians are doing. Uh, they apply all of government. I mean, when we talk about gray zones and gray areas, it's not just little green men. It's stealing technology. It's protecting their own technology. It's getting students out to the United States, in the case of China. Um, we're simply, uh, we've dropped that ball. We had Radio Free Europe, which was very effective during the Cold War and Voice of America, and Radio Liberty, and all sorts of other efforts working with trade unions and so on. We've dropped that ball entirely. We have 30 seconds, Dove. What would you watch moving forward to see if this turns into something actionable or turns into another report that sits on a shelf on Capitol Hill? Well, the first thing is let's see what the uh, Armed Services Committees do to uh, demand uh, reports. Uh, you know, DOD's flooded with reports, but still to demand timetables, concrete timetables for action to be done along the lines of this report. Dove Zackheim, great to have you back. Thanks very much. Thanks to you. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.